You're listening to a sermon from crckulaman.org. Training for the Jesus Life Part 3. Are you, uh, are you feeling... Well, I tell you, let's ask this question. Are you feeling physically fit? Now that we're a few weeks or a month or so into spring, have you started your, your um, training for the pool season? Have you been a bit more active? Walking a bit more? Riding a bit more? Yep. Okay, yep. You can go bike riding with Steve if you need to up your game a bit. He'll up it significantly for you by about 30 or 40 kilometres. <laughs> how, about, how about spiritually? Are you feeling spiritually fit? Yeah, cool, good. Well, we're, we're part three of our training for the Jesus life. And, uh, of course, this is a series we're doing that's looking at habits or spiritual disciplines, some people call them, that shape our lives in order for them to flourish and for Christ to be formed in us. And so over 12 weeks, we're looking at eight different spiritual habits that will help us thrive in our spiritual health. And if you you missed the, the first few weeks, well, we're currently in the detox phase, because every good spiritual every good health kick program has a detox phase doesn't it and so this is our detox phase and in week one we detoxed busyness does anyone here still need to detox busyness out of your life (laughs) all right so sabbath rest is what you need to grab hold of there all right sabbath rest will help you detox busyness a week two, we were detoxing our identity. Specifically, we were detoxing our addiction that we seem to have to approval. We seem to all have a bit of an issue with that, being addicted to wanting the approval of other people. And so if that's an issue for you, you can practice the habit of silence, solitude and secret service. So if you missed those sermons, you can jump online and catch up. Today's detox, selfishness selfishness we're going to detox selfishness and do you know what what habit we detox selfishness with fasting Mm. fasting so we're going to be learning to uh, deny ourselves you know learning to deny yourself is a key part of the discipleship journey it really is it's 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 foundational it's it's 101 it's it's kind of the milk of our of our spiritual lives really learning to deny yourself so mark 8 34 and you should be getting a bit familiar with this verse because i've been pulling it out a bit lately mark 8 34 then he called to the crowd uh, along with the disciples and said whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves selfishness is a huge problem in our society and and really sin is really what's what what stems like like selfishness stems from sin that's that's the core of it isn't it Our, our selfish me focused sin problem right back to the garden of eden We've got the snake there tempting Adam and Eve that that God is holding out on them, that they they deserve something more, that they should be getting something more. It's the the you're missing out temptation. It's the you have needs that can be met, that should be met, that must be met. And hey, you better eat this fruit so that you get your needs met. God didn't really say no. God wouldn't really, you know, withhold something from you that's good and tasty and pleasurable. God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? 
Won't you be more happy by eating the fruit? And you know, the snake's like, this garden, it's all about you, Adam and Eve. You know, God made it for you. It's all about your pleasures. Forget what God says. You're the ones that know what you need. And right there is, is what is at the heart of the sin problem that we have in this world. And I wonder, I wonder, do, do you think if Adam and Eve had fasted instead of eating the fruit, do you think things would have turned out differently? Eh? I don't know. <laughs> you know, sorry, snake, like, like you, I'm fasting. You know, your offer is fabulous, but I'm going to say no. Like the, the, the juice fast starts next week and I might then kind of juice some of the fruit on that tree or something. But, but today I'm on no food at all. Um, you know, come back in 40 days, maybe. I don't know. It's interesting, though, isn't it, to think that the first command in the Bible was actually one of restriction of food. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, God said, eat whatever you like, except for the fruit on that one tree. And so from the beginning, the woman and man were called to disciplined obedience, to abstain from a food that was pleasurable and desirable. Interesting. So for them to honour God and to be able to live in close communion with him was to actually say, no, I won't eat that very desirable looking food. I will say no to what my physical body and senses are saying yes to. Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. I wonder how often do we fall into that same temptation? It's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about what looks good. And it's not always food, is it? I mean, selfishness is not just about food. Food's a symptom. Food's a product. Uh, but it, it's always about our desire to indulge ourselves and honour ourselves and pleasure ourselves. And that is the selfish sin problem. And if you don't think you've ever had a problem with that, then you probably have a really big problem with that. And so constantly, you know, we're being bombarded with the messages from our old sin, fleshy nature that just wants to pleasure itself. And we're being bombarded with messages from our society and culture that has a raving obsession to gratify and to satisfy the self continually, continually. And I wonder, how do we in our daily life struggle with selfishness? I mean, when I was putting a sermon together, I thought, okay, examples of selfishness. Oh, I don't know, you know, I'm a fairly giving person, aren't I? I mean, I don't, I don't struggle too much with that, do I? But when I stopped and thought about how much of my life is all about my own pleasure and my own convenience and my own comfort, like I'm, I'm actually feeling embarrassed right now, okay? Because I sat and thought about, I thought, well, I've got a foot massager sitting there behind me that I don't even need to wait for my husband to want to massage my feet. I just sit there and flick it on any time I want the pleasure of massage feet. Right there, you know. And then I've got my scented candles sitting right next to it, like when my nose and my senses need a bit of extra pleasure and, and stimulation and relaxation. So I turn, you know, light the candles. So I've got my foot massage. I've got my scented candles. And then, you know, I have unending access to every single song in the world that has ever been recorded through my Spotify app. So, you know, no longer do I need to get sick of just one CD and then wait until I've got enough money to buy another CD. 
any song, any time I want it. I get sick of that album, I just listen to that one. If I get sick of that, just that one. Constantly, uh, complete access to everything. I have in my house two fridges and a freezer. Two fridges and a freezer. And they're full of food. Like often, I struggle to fit more food in. I'll come home with more bags of food that I am cramming into my freezer and trying to push the door shut. Better get another one. I have a pantry in my kitchen that's full of food. I then have an overflow cupboard in my kitchen that has more food. And then I have the equivalent of wartime stockpiles in shelves in my garage. I have rows of canned goods. So, you know, if Armageddon ever hits, come round to my house, folks. You know, we're well set up. Uh, I have too many books to count or probably even read. Um, and, you know, because it's really inconvenient to need to plug my electric vacuum into a PowerPoint and drag a cord around behind me because, you know, those cords, I mean, they're heavy. They're trouble cords. I've purchased a cordless stick vacuum. <laughs> cordless stick vacuum. You know, it's kind of like, and on the eighth day, God, God um, created the cordless vacuum and he declared it was very, very, very good. And he blessed Dyson for making it. I mean, amen right there. Okay, cordless vac. And, uh, you know, like I have a seven-day weather forecast, like within arm's reach at any time of the day I want it to consult the weather so that when I choose my clothing from my personal Trevor treasure cave of clothes, like my walk-in robe is jam-packed, full of clothes, it's like Aladdin's cave in there, I can choose correctly the clothes I need to wear so that I must never feel hot or cold but am perfectly satisfied, whatever the weather is out there. And then, like, I've got three TVs in my house. And so depending on whether I want to lie down or sit up while I watch TV or which lounge I would like to sit up in, I can choose according to my own personal needs and gratifications. And, and, and you know, so that I don't ever have to actually miss any show that I might want to watch. And, look, I should add, I don't actually watch that much TV, but for the point of this, let's just pretend I do. So that I don't actually have to miss any TV, we've got a digital TV recorder. And you know what? If we're too lazy to program the digital TV recorder, we just access it on catch-up TV on any one of our multiple phones, tablets or computers that are in our house. And, you know, if I can't be bothered to talk to friends, if I want to talk to friends but I can't actually be bothered to speak to them or even get out of bed to do it, I just flick them a quick Facebook message or a text. I mean, how easy is that? And if I can't even be bothered to muster up the energy to think about words to send them, I just flick them off some memes and emojis. You know, you can have whole conversations based on memes and emojis. You don't even need to think at all. Perfect. You know, if I'm sick of... You're going to think differently by the end of this, aren't you? You know, if I'm sick of having the same meal again, like twice in one month, because who would want to have the same meal, like, like repeatedly? Like, that's no good for your pleasure sensations. No, 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 you need to Google. Like, I just Google for a new novel recipe, and within milliseconds, I have access to millions of new ideas for the evening meal. And then, if I don't want to shop for the ingredients for that meal... I just order it online whilst listening to my pleasurable music and having my feet massaged and they get delivered to my house. And you know what? I don't even need to carry them inside because a worker does that for me. <laughs> hey? And if, you know what? 
if I'm, if I'm too busy watching catch-up TV on my tablet to cook these delivered ingredients for my exotic Asian-inspired dinner that I found on taste.com.au for the friends that I invited over for a meal via text message, I don't even need to do that because I have a thermi that will cut it up, stir it and cook it for me. You know what? My every pleasure and whim is catered for. And I believe the lie that life is all about me and my satisfaction. This, this is a culture obsessed with ourselves. Do you think? Obsessed with our pleasure and it is not good. It is not good. It's a product of the fall and it's not how we were made to live. It makes us miserable. It really does. It makes us miserable. It's a source of relationship breakdown, discontent, envy, mental health issues, poverty, crime, strife. It's a source of spiritual lethargy. It's the reason we have empty, powerless churches in our country. Because while we are choking on our own selfish desires, we think that God and everyone else in the church is there to meet our needs, we are unable to feed upon the desires of God and we are unable to serve him and serve others. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So what's the solution to our self-obsession? And maybe none of you are as self-obsessed as I appear to be upon reflection. Fasting. Fasting. We're going to look at fasting. And that's, fasting is abstaining from food for a period of time for spiritual purposes. Sometimes fasting is done corporately as a, as a whole church. Um, uh, God's people together and sometimes it's done individually, a quiet thing between you and God. Richard Foster, who is sort of the guru on spiritual disciplines, he makes this observation about fasting. He says, in a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden arches and an assortment of pizza temples, fasting seems out of place, out of step with the times. What do you think about that? Fasting is one, and look, it's not the only one, but it's a significant way we can tackle our, our propensity to self-gratification and the need to selfishly have all of our pleasures met. Now, the problem that I notice with fasting is this. Some people are so obsessed by fasting that they are almost possessed by it. They're, they're obsessed to the point of possessed. Uh, fasting is sort of blown way out of proportion and becomes an idol, or it becomes works. You know, there's, there's this sense that, that without fasting, you feel like you can't approach God or hear from God or, or win with God. But then there's the opposite end of the spectrum. And, and some people are so repelled by fasting that they've relegated it to the realm of religious crazies. And they never, ever, ever dream of actually incorporating it into their life. And maybe, maybe some of you here, you've never even just thought about fasting. It's a bit new to you. And so what I want to do today is to bring a bit of insight. I want to have a look at some scriptures on fasting. And to, to just draw out some common themes and some attitudes of the heart that should guide our fasting. And to have a bit of a look at some outcomes that we might see from fasting. Now there's a lot of scriptures here, but we're going to shoot through them really quickly. If you've got 
the app, you'll have them all there, so you can go home and have a closer look at them. There's quite a few, but I really wanted to give us a, an overview of what the Bible actually says about fasting, because there's a lot of stuff that people say about fasting out there, heaps of it. But I think it's good to actually have a look at what the Bible says about fasting, rather than people's personal opinions and experiences of fasting. So here we go, let's jump in. Deuteronomy 9.9. So we may not actually read all of these. In fact, we won't. But I'll just, if you've got them there on your, on your phone and we've, yep, we've got them up there, you'll see the ones I'm referring to. So Deuteronomy 9.9. So we've got Moses here uh, going up on the mountain to receive the, the stone tablets of, of the law, you know, the Ten Commandments, etc., etc., from God. And so this particular fast that Moses engaged in was initiated by God. God told him, Get up there on the mountain, and for 40 days, Moses doesn't eat or drink. Now, this is a very unusual and unique fast. Uh, 40 days without food or water is really only possible by means of direct supernatural miracle. If you go without 40 days, without water for 40 days, you will die. Don't do that, okay? That was a special one for Moses. Uh, you've got about three days, I figure, without water, okay? So d don't do it. Um, unless you think you're in the league of Moses and Jesus, and you're probably not. Come and see me if you think you are, and I'll set you straight, but okay? All right, just a proviso, all right? You've got three days you can go without water, just making that clear. All right, next one, Leviticus. Um, oh, so what happens for Moses up there on the mountain is he receives a significant revelation, significant word or instruction from God. Okay, so hold that thought. Let's have a look at Leviticus 23, 27. This is all about the, the Day of Atonement. And so the Day of Atonement uh, for sin, they, the Israelites were instructed to fast. So this happened once a year. And it was a fast showing sorrow and mourning for their sins. So this was an, an act of repentance that they were engaged in. 2 Chronicles 22 to 4. We've got here a, a national emergency. Uh, there's a pe an army coming against God's people. And, and so as a people, they, they come together and they, uh, they fast and they seek help and insight and instruction and advice from the Lord. We have Daniel 9, 3 to 5, and also Daniel 10, uh, verses 3 and 12. And um, actually, I'll, I'll quickly read these ones. So... Uh, Daniel 9, 3 to 5. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord by God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. And then Daniel 10, 3. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. And then Daniel 10, 12. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them. Uh, they'd be great ones for you to go home and just read the fuller context of, the, of those verses. But basically, uh, Daniel is, is repenting on behalf of God's people, and Daniel is pleading with God in prayer and petition. He's in fasting, in sackcloth, and in ashes. 
uh, in the chapter 10 one there, we see Daniel's received a, a very concerning revelation or, or message from God. And it, it speaks of war and calamity from God's people. And so he fasts to seek insight about what this message meant. And as part of that fast, he stops eating nice foods, nice drinks, nice and using nice body lotions. And the description here is of him being in mourning. Uh, there's actions of grieving, showing sorrow and lament. And it's, the fast is described as him humbling himself before God. Let's go to Esther 4.16. And, and you'd be familiar with the book of Esther. Obviously, um, there's the law made that's going to see all of God's people killed. And, and so it's a desperate national emergency. It's threatening their life. And so the people come together and uh, are engaged in a corporate fast before Esther goes and approaches the king to ask for mercy. And what this is is an expression of extreme grief and desperation of the people. So desperate times call for desperate measures. Um, then we've got Joel 1, uh, verse 14, and then also verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12 to 15. So declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land, to the houses of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And then Joel 2, 12 to 15. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he resents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. So we've got their corporate repentance for sin. God's people are seeking mercy from God for their sin. They are humbling themselves before him. Jonah 3.5, we've got the Ninevites. They've, they've, they're repenting of their sin after Jonah has preached to them. And so they're repenting through fasting. We've got Ezra 8.21. Again, the people are humbling themselves before God. They're asking for safety and protection from him. We've got Nehemiah 9.1. We've got uh, the Israelites have gathered to have the law read to them and they realize how far from God they've strayed. And so what's their response? To confess their sin through fasting, through wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. In Matthew 9.15, Jesus says, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast. Again, Jesus here is linking the idea of fasting being about mourning and grieving loss. Uh, Acts 9.9, we've got Saul on the road to Damascus. He's been struck blind. He's desperate. He realizes he's been wrong about Jesus. And so what does he do as an act of humility and repentance? He stops eating for three days, so he's fasting for three days. And then Acts 13.2, uh, we see the church gathered, and they're gathered in worship and fasting. And what happens during that is they receive divine direction from God in relation to leadership, ministry, and calling in the church. So that's a lot of scriptures I've just thrown at you in one hit. I really recommend you go home, have a read, have a think about those. But what I'm going to draw out for you is just some common themes and, and hard attitudes so that we, um, we understand really what is at the heart of fasting. Okay, So the first, the first theme we see there is that fasting is about repentance of sin. 
Fasting is about repentance of sin. It's when we realize we've done the wrong thing, we've broken relationship with God, when we're saying, you know, we haven't followed your ways, Lord. And uh, we, we approach God uh, as a way of demonstrating that through fasting. The second theme that we see there is grief and mourning. So we, we are coming to God through fasting with something that has huge consequences for us, like life or death consequences. We're, we're in extreme heart pain or sorrow and we're expressing the depth of that emotion and that difficulty to God and we are pouring that out to him through the act of fasting. We see that fasting is always linked to prayer and worship and we didn't look at these scriptures, but in Luke 2, you see the example of Anna, the 84-year-old widow who never leaves the temple, but spends her whole time worshipping, praying, and fasting. And then in Acts 13, we see the disciples, they're both worshipping and fasting. And again, Nehemiah 9, as the, the Israelites fast and repent of sin, they're also engaged in worship of God. So, so fasting is always linked with prayer and worship. And then fourth... Fasting is always linked with a sense of humbling ourselves before God. It's our way of saying, you know what? I don't have all the answers, God. We don't have all the answers. We're stuck. I'm stuck. You are God and we are not. And, and fasting is an expression of that. Now, I, I wonder, I wonder, I don't know. I wonder if this is the, expression, the attitude of Christians when we fast. Now, I, I jumped onto uh, Kurong did a bit of a Google of books on fasting just to see, well, what's the, what's the general take on fasting out there? It's quite interesting. Now, look, I will just say, I, I haven't read these books that I'm about to mention, so they may be more biblical than their title suggests, all right? So I'll just say that. They, they, these books I'm about to list, I, I haven't read them, so they may actually be okay books. So if you have one of these sitting on your bookshelf, don't get too offended, all right? But look, the, the, the titles of these books completely give the wrong idea about fasting. The titles of these books that I'm about to mention make fasting sound all about us and our power and our success and our breakthrough and our needs. And what I want to say is, is books like this, titles like this, feed our selfish agenda. You know, fasting is supposed to break the me focus. The, it's all about me. But, but I think sometimes the way the Christian church has interpreted the idea of fasting is that it actually makes it all about us and our spiritual breakthrough and our power and our success. Have a listen to this. First book, The Power of Prayer and Fasting, God's Gateway to Spiritual Breakthrough. The Hidden Power of Prayer and Fasting. The Miracle Results of Fasting. I don't know, when I read those scriptures there before to you, they, they were all about mourning and weakness and, and ashes and sackcloth and, you know, your face on the dirt. They weren't about your spiritual power. They weren't about success and victory in your spiritual life. They are about, you know, I'm at the end of my tether, Lord. Next one, fasting made easy. Fasting made easy. I don't know, is that really the point of fasting? <laughs> like, is fasting meant to be easy? 
Here's the blurb from the book. While it might seem like a sacrifice, Dr. Don Colbert, author of the bestseller Toxic Relief and the Bible Cure series, believes fasting is a powerful tool for health, cleansing and spiritual empowerment. Do you know what? I, I'm pretty certain Esther, Ezra and the Ninevites weren't thinking about a healthy gut clean out and a little bit of spiritual empowerment when they called their fast. They were thinking about the fact that they were about to die. About this one, how to fast successfully. I mean, fasting is meant to be an expression of our humility and our human failure, our human sin, our weakness, our frailty, our need of God. And, and, and to link fasting with success just seems downright odd. How about this one, fasting for our financial breakthrough. I mean, again, fasting is all about sackcloth and ashes rather than your financial breakthrough. It's about humility and poverty of spirit rather than being flush with finance. You know, fasting is all about less of me, more of you, Lord, not more of my finances. Thank you very much, Lord. How about this one, my, my personal favourite? <laughs> I sometimes wonder if people actually read the Bible, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I read that, that um, passage from Daniel there. Remember Daniel went on his fast and, and as part of his fast to inquire of the Lord, he ate no nice food, no choice delicacies, no nice stuff, no nice food, okay? So the title of this book, you ready? <laughs> the, the Daniel Fast Made Delicious. I mean, that's so missing the point. Like Daniel deprived himself of all the nice stuff. That was the point of his fast. Now, when I look at scripture, I, I, I'm not seeing that fasting is a means to our own personal spiritual enlightenment and power and success and breakthrough, because that would be making fasting all about uh, what we want. And that's not fasting, that's feeding your selfishness. So here's the thing, here's the point. If you take home nothing else from today, take home this. Fasting can do one of two things. It can either break your selfishness or it can broker your selfishness. Fasting can break or broker selfishness. So, for example, the Pharisees made it all about them. They used it to broker their selfishness, to foster their selfishness. Luke 18, 9 to 14, we see the Pharisee feeling pretty darn pleased with himself. He says, I fast twice a week. I tithe, you know, he's a law-abiding citizen. And he's so proud of it because it makes him one of the spiritual elite, doesn't it? Hey, don't we love being the spiritual elite, the successful people? You know, the ones that have it all together, the ones that practice all of our spiritual disciplines. We tithe, we fast, we pray. Sometimes we feel so proud of ourselves. Matthew 6, 16 to 18 the Pharisees are making fasting obvious so that people admire them. They admire their religious devotion and their spirituality. They're making uh, fasting a source of their pride and their success. And Jesus says, no, no, your, your fasting, your prayer, your acts of service, it is not to be done for the admiration of others. Don't feed your pride and self-obsession by letting others know what you are doing. So here's the test for us. 
when we make uh, fasting or any other spiritual discipline a measure of our spiritual success or a measure of our value as a Christian, as a source of our pride and personal satisfaction, we miss the point. And Jesus will not celebrate that. Because that's the opposite of what fasting is supposed to be about. That sort of stuff feeds our selfishness. Jesus celebrates our humility, our contrite hearts that know we are in desperate need of his mercy and his grace. And that is the attitude of the heart that should guide all of our spiritual disciplines, especially our fasting. Fasting can break or broker selfishness. When it's done in grief and sorrow and mourning and repentance and, and desperation of heart and gravity of need, with a posture of humility, it will break your selfish spirit and it will bring you genuine transformation. So fasting done in humility, in the context of prayer and worship, it's, it will result in three things. Three things. So the first thing, it will result in divine revelation. So where there is need for insight and direction and guidance that is, is significant, then fasting is a means to enter into humble communion with God to receive his guidance. So this is, this is not, like fasting is not like, oh Lord, who shall I have a coffee with this week? Oh, I'd better fast. Hear, hear your direction. Like it's, it's not that sort of stuff. Um, you know, you don't need to fast every time you make a decision. God has filled you with the spirit of common sense. You know that? Uh, trust that he will naturally guide you without the need for kind of like all those spiritual gymnastics all of the time. However, there are matters of significance that come up in our life from time to time that we may need to position ourselves to hear from God through fasting. And so one example there we saw in Acts 13, the commissioning of, of Barnabas and Saul for ministry. It occurred in the context of, of worship and fasting. And so as we turn away from our, our physical needs through fasting and as we turn to God, what happens is that we open ourselves up to his wisdom and his direction. Our, our heart and our spirit becomes more receptive. And we're reminded in fasting that we are only ever truly sustained by God's word. You see, Jesus fasting in the desert and tempted by Satan, and he says this, It is written, Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So fasting results in divine revelation. Fasting will also result in divine assistance. So where there is a need that uh, we have that is bigger than usual, you know, a, a kind of a life or death need or something that is of great urgency or great importance, fasting can be a tool that stops us thinking that we can do, win, and survive without God. Because that's the default position of the human heart. Oh, I can do it all without you, Lord. Um, fasting can be uh, the, the thing that brings us to our knees in humility because we realize how frail and how fragile we really are. We realize our need of God and we call on him for help. And so we learn through fasting that we are not held together by food or by things, but by Christ alone. Colossians 1 17 
He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. We learn through fasting that we are not held together by food or by things, but by Christ. And then the third thing we, we, we uh, receive through fasting is divine mercy. So when you are beset by sin, when you have things in your life that are holding you bondage, when you need to repent, fasting can be an appropriate physical expression of our inner spiritual need. And so we can mourn and grieve our sin before God through fasting. And I think that's often, I think you will find that a very effective way to work through some of the areas in your life that you still feel captive to, that you feel ashamed of, held prisoner to, that you feel um, uh, guilt and condemnation over. Humble yourself before God. Express your grief. Mourn uh, the condition of your heart through fasting. Fasting reveals the things that control us or that we use to cover up our nakedness. You know, like Adam and Eve, they they tried to cover their sin and their guilt and their shame. We try and cover our guilt and our shame through food, through things, through experiences, through possessions. I mean, who doesn't feel good after a good clothes shop? I mean, come on. Bad day? Go shopping. You know, we cover up, we compensate for the stuff that's, that's not working inside of us through food and through things and possessions. And so in fasting, you know, our our true attitudes and our true priorities, they surface. They will surface as all our props and all our distractions are taken away. And then in prayer and fasting, we can bring all of these things before God's throne in humility. And we can receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So we're not commanded to fast. Like we, we don't observe the Old Testament fasting rituals such as the Day of Atonement. But fasting was clearly part of a New Testament believer's life. It was clearly part of, of, of God's uh, people's expression of faith. And so I believe it's a helpful tool. If you want to learn how to truly deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, this is a spiritual habit that you will find very helpful. There'll be times when as a church we'll come together to pray and fast. And I encourage you to be part of those times. It's significant when God's people come together with, with one heart, isn't it? And, and, and humble ourselves as one people before God. And uh, it's clear that when God's people did that as, as a corporate group, uh, there was significant benefit and, and turnaround and a change in circumstances. So I'd encourage you at at, at any point in the future when we say, hey, church, let's fast together. I encourage you to get involved with that. Just quickly, very quickly, if you've never fasted before, some quick tips, start small. Like don't start with like a big, you know, 40-day fast or something. Uh, Start small. Begin fasting a meal a day over a, a meal per week, sorry, a meal per week over a few weeks. And then maybe work up to two meals. Uh, Work your way up to a day-long fast or a two-day-long juice fast or something. Don't fast water. I mean, Moses and Esther and Jesus did that, but that doesn't mean you should. Keep drinking water, please. (laughs) Uh, Go about your daily business while fasting. 
So with an inner heart of worship, an inner heart of adoration, and whether you're in direct prayer or whether you're just doing mundane daily tasks or work, make everything in your day about sacred ministry to the Lord. And then while you're fasting, monitor your hearts for toxins of selfishness that, that, that are being released. And so you may experience anger, fear, contempt, hatred, judgment. Just bring them to God as they surface. Bring them to God in repentance. And then if you're undertaking a longer fast, break it gradually. You know, your body needs time to readjust to food again. So go slow. Um, and so just, you know, as I finish, I guess I just want to throw the challenge out to all of us here. What sort of church do you want to be? What sort of church do we want to be? What sort of people do we want to be? Do we want to be people? Do we want to be a church that really knows how to deny ourselves? take up our cross and follow him? Are we willing to set aside the, the, the needs of, of, of ourself, the needs of our flesh, the needs of our heart in order to uh, serve God more effectively and serve his people more effectively? You know, what sort of church do we want to be? Our, our little mission statement, uh, uh, to have a point of connection with every home in the Coolman Shire, uh, meeting needs and bringing love, acceptance and forgiveness in Jesus' name. You know, we can only do that if we, um, if we crucify the selfish nature, can't we? If we um, humble ourselves before God and really get hold of what it means to live a, a self-sacrificial, selfless, selfless life of service. Um, I, can, I can encourage you to do this. I can provide uh, information and opportunities to do it. But at the end of the day, this is, this is your decision. You guys have the power to shape what sort of church and ministry we are and we become. You, you have the, uh, the ability to step into everything that God has for you in this life or not a lot of what God has for you in this life. And um, I think the extent to which you open yourself up to uh, the Holy Spirit's transformative work in your life will be the extent to which um, you really experience significant joy in your daily life in all that you do. So let's pray. Mm. Father God, we just come before you in, in humility and we confess that so often we make life all about us and our needs. So often we look at other people and we think they should be meeting our needs and we fail to see how we should be meeting their needs. Lord, so often we come before you in, in, in prayer or, or we come to church and we think that it's all about us and what you should be doing in our life. But Lord, would you, would you change our hearts and minds? Would you help us to see, um, to, desire, to desire more of you and less of us? Lord, would you come and, and, and change our, our selfish, uh, pleasure-seeking, um, self-focused uh, lives and make them purely about you? Lord, we can only do that through your power, through the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, just come and convict us. Come and bring um, just that work of transformation that is needed to see uh, Christ truly formed in us. Father, may we be a church that knows how to humble ourselves before you, that knows how to grieve our sin, but also celebrate uh, the, the greatness of the, the victory of the life that we now live 
through Jesus. Would you bring real transformation to us as a people? And may we be a people who introduce others to Jesus and to the, the transformation that he can make in their life too. Thank you, Jesus. I'm just, um, yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, maybe there are some people here today who this Jesus stuff is, is new for you, that, that you've heard about Jesus, you've uh, maybe been introduced to him, maybe your family knows Jesus, but you're, you're a bit unsure. You've never, you've never made that decision. You've never crossed that line of faith. You've never said, yes, yes, I open my life to you, Jesus. Come in. Come and bring that, that transformation into my life. Come and make my life all about you rather than all about me. So I just invite you now, while our, while our heads are bowed, while we're in this quiet moment, I just invite you now, you know, um, you can say yes to Jesus right here, right now. You can say yes to Jesus right here, right now. You know, there's nothing, nothing big or fancy you need to say. You can just say, Jesus, I just invite you into my life. Jesus, I want to know you. Jesus, come and live in me. Come and make my life new. Come and reveal yourself to me, Jesus. I'm, I'm, I, I, I want to live for you. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I'm sick of living this selfish, me-focused life. It's making me sick. It's making me miserable. Jesus, I just want to live for you. And if that's you this afternoon, you know, if that's you this afternoon, if you've, if you've prayed that prayer, if you've, if you've asked Jesus to come and enter into you, you know what? He, he, he's done that. He is faithful. He has made you a new person, a new creation. And if you've prayed that prayer today, I just encourage you to tell someone. Come and tell me. Come and tell um, uh, someone you know, someone you trust so that they can encourage you and, and um, just journey with you in this thing called faith life with Jesus. Yeah. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Just would you journey with us this week as we go about our daily business. May everything we do be done for your glory and um, be done out of, a, out of a heart of humility and love and devotion for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.